chapter 14 this morning. Man, what a great time of music. Wasn't the teenagers great this morning? My wife was lobbying for them to like lead worship. It sounded like every Sunday, but I was like, no. And then she's like, once a month. I was like, no, once a quarter. And I was like, yeah, maybe. Um, but uh, they're really good. Um, so I'm grateful to, to God for them, and Nate, man, Nate can, he's our switch hitter, he can do all kinds of stuff, he uh, leads fabulously our student ministry, he also is a very uh, gifted worship leader as well, and then he is good with graphics and video, and he does all of the things that we need to do that, you know, the rest of us can't do, Nate does, and so I'm grateful for him and his ministry here. Uh, Luke 14 is where we're at this morning, and if you remember last Sunday, I, I shared a story about President Thomas Jefferson many, many years ago, and uh, talking about the, the fact when, that you, when you need help, you can typically tell whether or not a person's going to help you by the look on their face. Their face will either say yes, or their face will say no. So if you remember that story I opened with last Sunday, the, the story goes like this. There was Thomas Jefferson, when he was president, he's traveling across the country with some of his companions. I don't know if it was his cabinet or, or, or what, but surely he had a security detail with him, and they're traveling, and obviously they're by horseback by the time, in, uh, the time frame it was back in the 1800s. So he's traveling, and uh, they come across a river, come up across a river that has been flooded. And so it's, it's went past its banks. It's actually been washed out a bridge, a bridge that they were going to use to cross over to the other side. And so to get to the banks of the river, and they're beginning to look at what they're going to do, how they're going to cross it, how they're going to ford this river. And while they're assessing the situation, there's also a, tra a pedestrian, a traveler that's on foot, who's also at the same place. And uh, the president and his detail decide that they're going to ford the river on horseback. And uh, several of those riders safely reach the other side. And this individual who's watching this decides, I'm not going to swim across this thing. And so I'm going to ask for help. And he turns to the president and says, sir, may I get on your horse and you ferry me across the river? President Jefferson, without any hesitation whatsoever, says, absolutely, hop up. So he gets on the horse uh, behind him, and they cross the river, they get to the other side, and one of the, the men that was traveling with the president looks at this man, and after he slid off the back of the horse and says, may I just ask why you would trouble the president with carrying you across the river? And this man says something like, man, I had no idea that this was President Jefferson. I, I just looked around, and I saw on the faces of some of the men, no, and I saw on the faces of others, yes, and the president's face was definitely a yes. And so when we think about that, we, we understand that the message people have on their face many times when we need help is one of those things. It's either yes or it's a no. 
As we come to the Word of God, and specifically the Gospels, and even more specifically the, the Gospel of Luke that we've been walking through for a number of months now, what we have seen over and over again in every story about the Lord Jesus Christ is that his face was a yes. Jesus was always looking for opportunities. Jesus was always looking to help people to ferry them across the great river that divides them and separates them from God, their creator, God the Father. And so it was a yes on Jesus' face. In fact, Jesus was always, and Jesus is always, on the search for people, always looking for opportunities to leverage those opportunities to this end. This morning, as we are once again in Luke chapter 14, we're going to see this on full display. So I want you to look with me. Chapter 14, and let's just begin reading in verse 1. We're going to re read the first two verses. We're going to skip down to verse 25. But look at verse 1 again. We looked at this last Sunday. Luke says, One Sabbath, when he, that is Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were coming, or, or they were watching him carefully, I should say. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And so I'm not going to go into the rest of the text. I preached that last Sunday. But if you remember there, Jesus is in this house of a Pharisee, and as he comes in, the Pharisees have laid a trap for him. They want to get him performing a miracle on the Sabbath, which is something they can criticize him and build a case against him. We talked about that. But Jesus notices a man with dropsy or edema, a medical condition. He's terminally ill. Jesus heals him, uses this, as, uses this uh, situation as an opportunity to talk about people who are far from God. And that's what I laid out before you last Sunday as we talked about how we ought to, like Jesus, look to and look for people who are far from God and need the gospel of Jesus. Look now at verse 25. Luke says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me. This morning, I want to use these four verses or so to lay the foundation and, and whet your appetite for a conversation about what it means to leverage opportunities. To leverage opportunities for the sake of the gospel amongst our family, amongst our friends, amongst our neighbors, amongst our community members, throughout our nation and around the nations. How can we and how should we leverage the opportunities that the Lord has laid before us for kingdom purposes? During the days of Jesus' life and his ministry that we read about in the Gospels, he constantly pushed against a religious culture that really wanted nothing more than the appearance of godliness without the power. They wanted to appear godly. They wanted to appear spiritual. They wanted all of the forms that came along with that, but they denied its power, and that is they denied the Lord himself. You see, in all reality, the culture of Judaism at this time, I believe we could easily say had it, it had a secular aspect to it, a secular spirit to it. It's something that redefined the essential beliefs in subtle ways. It wasn't drastic things. It was a subtle secular drift. We might describe their religious approach to life as moralistic, therapeutic deism. This is a term that was coined by Christian Smith in sociology arenas many, many years ago. 
Moralistic therapeutic deism basically consists of believing in some God who exists and created the world. It's believing in that a God who wants people simply to be congenial and kind, that the goal of life is happiness and self-fulfillment. And I think as we read and understand Judaism at this point in history, that is exactly what's taking place here. The subtle secular drift in this religion had fostered two streams of thought. One of those was championed by the Pharisees that we see in Scripture. Pharisees of Jesus' day would have been considered the conservatives. They held to the inerrancy of Scripture. They held to the authority of Scripture. They sought to lead people to live out the letter of the law. But the problem with their conservatism is that it placed the emphasis on one's ability to keep the law as a means for salvation. The other stream was championed by what the Bible tells us is or were the Sadducees. The Sadducees would have been the opposite of that. They would have been the liberals of their day. And so it doesn't matter what era of life we go back to and look at. There's always conservatives, there's always liberals, and there's always people in the middle. So the Sadducees were the liberals. They're the ones who denied the inerrancy of Scripture. They're the ones who, who held very leftist-leaning uh, belief systems. They denied the supernatural. They, they denied angels. They denied the immortality of the soul. They denied the bodily resurrection. The problem with their liberalism is that it put very little emphasis on the teachings of the law. Both streams, I believe, pursued the appearance of godliness while denying its power. Secularization within Judaism worked in both a passive as well as an active way to remove God. And when you remove God, the only thing you insert is self. So there's an emphasis on self there. The goal when all of this was never to annihilate Judaism. The goal was simply to redefine Jewish, Judaism and Jewish beliefs. In fact, we know this because Judaism still exists today. And yet Judaism, whether conservative or liberal, remains, in the secular, remains secular in the sense that it still denies that salvation is through Christ alone. So they're denying the very point of Scripture, the very revelation of Scripture. And so this secularism has not been a threat to Judaism's existence. It's been a threat to Judaism's faithfulness. You say, why are you talking all this talk about Jewish beliefs. Well, I believe, and I would say this morning, that we could say the very same things about the Christian church today. I'm taking our staff through a, a book that I would commend to you to read. It's called The Gathering Storm. It's, the tagline is secularism, uh, society, and the church. Culture, I should say, and the church. And in this book, Dr. Albert Moeller explains that this threat to the church that we're seeing is, is exactly what I've just described that was taking place way back then. He says this, and I quote, The church of Jesus Christ must always live as a people of the book, as scriptural people devoted to zealous study of God's word. The Bible is the norming norm that cannot be normed. He goes on to say elsewhere, where you can find a church... You find a community committed to the Bible. If not, you've not found a church. Consequently, as a faithful people committed to God's word, the local church must stand in today's secular world. 
We must stand, as Jude says, for the faith that's once for all delivered to the saints. Standing like that for the faith that's once for all delivered to the saints means that we are going to hold to the preaching of the word as the first mark of what it means to be a New Testament church. It means that we're going to hold to confessional identity as a hallmark of our identity. It means we're going to hold to the totality of the Christian worldview. And it means, lastly, that we're going to hold firmly to the commitment to the Great Commission. You know, the more I interact with people and whatever level that is, church people, politics people, community people, even as I stand and watch from afar the greater movements within society, I am reminded just how important our Christian commitment to the Great Commission is. You see, we live in a world that is full of lost people. We live in a world that is full of people who think they're okay but they're not. I believe today we're living in a day and age in which there are so many people, though it's it's becoming less and less, but we still live in a day and an age where people are still familiar enough with the things of God and the people of God that they think they're okay. It's all the more reason we need to hold to a strong commitment to the Great Commission. The hope for the people in our community, the hope for the people in our nation and the nations of the world is Jesus. Would you agree with that this morning? That the hope for the people that live across the road from you, the people that live across the county from you, and the people that live across the state and around the nation, and like the people that our team is seeking to minister to on the other side of the world, the only hope for them is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a new political system. It's not better economics. It's not greater job opportunities. It's not greater and expanded educational opportunities. The greatest and only hope for people is Jesus Christ. The way to present Jesus to them is to make sure we as Christians stand on the word of God and we share it with them. You see, there has been a movement, and it's what happens in all movements, in all faith structures. It's what's been happening throughout history. In the history of the Bible, redemptive history that we read here, is there, there's this, always this movement away from from the things of God. And we've seen it in Judaism leading up to Jesus' time. We've seen it in church, church history over the last 2,000 years. There's this movement away from God, away from the gospel, in the name of being more relevant. There's nothing more relevant for the people that live across the road and live across the world than the very word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we don't give that to people, we have absolutely nothing to give them. I can't even imagine what I would do, what we would do as a church if we didn't 100% say we believe everything in the word of God. And if we don't have that, we have nothing. What do we have to give people if it's not the gospel? What do we have to give people if it's not the unadulterated word of God that's going to call sin what it is and call people to repentance and faith? See, the way to present Jesus to people is to make sure we as Christians are standing firmly on the word of God and firmly and committedly sharing it with them. We're never going to see people move toward God on their own. I've told you that many times, that we all are prone and have the propensity to drift. We don't fall into Jesus. We don't fall into greater love for Jesus. We don't fall into godliness. No, we have to determine ourselves to move in that direction. So we should never think that our culture is going to move in that direction. It's always going to move to the left. 
Culture never moves to the Lord because people who are left to themselves will only move away from God. So the secularization of our culture today is influencing everything. And before we begin to think that it has no influence in the church, let me say this morning, it is influencing the church more than we've ever known. It's even influencing this church more than we would like to realize this morning. If we did a deep assessment of our personal lives, a deep assessment of our family structure, if we did a deep assessment of even our, our, our modes of operation here as a church, how much of those things would be a whole lot more secular than they are godly. Secularism has its talons in us, and it's time that we understand that as a body of believers. Christians are being lulled to sleep by passive secularism that simply says, let's just live and let live. Let's just let people do what they want to do. Let's not speak into that. Let's not call that out. Let's just not do anything. In fact, let's turn our heads and not even pay attention. You see, we don't want to get involved. We don't see the need to get involved. And so this docile pressure prevents us from doing the very thing that the Word of God tells us to do. Love our neighbor as ourselves. You see, if we don't call a spade a spade, if we don't point out a sin that's there, how are we lovingly caring for and seeking to help the neighbor that the Word of God tells us to love? The the most loving thing that we could do is to jump in the way and say, the direction you're headed is dangerous and deadly, and so don't go that way. That's the most loving thing that we could do is to call sin what it is and to call things ungodly that are ungodly. Today, rather than warning of the dangers of sin, what we do is we lovingly approve of that sin, the very sin that is ferrying people to a devil's hell. Christians are simply hesitant to stand on biblical truth, hesitant to call people to repentance and faith in Jesus. Why is that happening like it is in the church? As a result... Our society and our community continue to move away from anything and everything that resembles the God of the Bible and spiral downward into greater immorality. And here's what we do. We sit back in the church and we say, why is this happening? (laughs) Why is our culture going to hell in a handbasket? Why is we moving so far in that direction? What's going on in America? What's going on in Virginia? What's going on in our Bible Belt in the South? Why is this happening? Here's the reason it's happening. We as the Christian church are asleep. We as the Christian church no longer believe that it's our duty, our responsibility, our obligation to be salt and light in a world that knows nothing of those things. And yet Jesus has called us to be just that. He's called us to wake up because the problem is us. Sinful people will always be sinful. We should never ask and never require and never expect lost people to act godly, but we should point them to Jesus. We should call the sin out among ourselves. We have largely failed to leverage the opportunities God gives us to share the gospel. Surely we know the gospel mandate to make disciples. We talk about it often here at Redding, right? We talk about the need, 
that, to go out and to share the gospel and to tell people about Jesus. We talk about how important it is to tell our story and talk about our testimony and who we were before Jesus and who we are now in Jesus. And we, we're, we talk about how we need to call them to faith and repentance. But how many of us actually do that? How many of us can say, this year I've shared the gospel with this person, that person. This year I've, I've witnessed to them and led them to faith in Jesus. This year I've, I've invested spiritually into this person's life. Jesus looked for opportunities to help people. Jesus looked for opportunities to ferry them across the great divide that separates them from God. This is evident in these few verses we read earlier. So I just wonder this morning, before I get into some ways that we need to be looking at leveraging opportunities, can, can you look and take an assessment of your life and say, I am doing that. Like Jesus, I am leveraging the opportunities God has placed before me for kingdom purposes. Let me give you three ways, three areas, I guess, that we need to look at to leverage opportunities. First of all, let's talk about leveraging opportunities at home. Just as Jesus saw the man setting a cross for him who suffered from dropsy. Remember, going back to Luke 14, 2. I wonder this morning, do you see people in your circles that like him need Jesus? They live in and around your home, and they're suffering from a spiritual disease, the disease of sin. I wonder this morning, do you see children who are lost and in need of a Savior? Your children, do you see them in your home that need Jesus, and you recognize that? Do you see your parents? Do you see your siblings? Do you see cousins, aunts, uncles? Do you see the people that are in your home? How about this? Do you see the neighbors who live next door and down the street? They live in your neighborhood, and, and you see them. You know them. You recognize their spiritual need in your life, and, and you're moving to invest there. See, if we're going to leverage opportunities for the gospel, it begins at home. It begins where we recognize that our family members and our friends and our neighbors are dead in their trespasses and sins, and they are on the road to hell. And all the while, God has sovereignly placed you just where you are for such a time as this. God has sovereignly placed you in that home where you live, in that family that you're a part of, to have those relationships, to have those influences. Why? It's not so that you can just have good friends, have people over potluck, and have a good time. It is, do you think I need some water? Thank you. Now I got two cups of water. It is that time of year where you get a little something in your throat, and sometimes you just got to cough it away. But I'm all good. Thank you, Melissa, for serving your pastor. But do we know those relationships and we, we recognize that God has placed us there where we are for that purpose? Right there in that family, right there in that neighborhood for gospel purposes. Do you see and understand this purpose for your life? If we walk through the word of God and specifically the gospels, we see examples of this. Here's one example, John chapter 1. 
We come across the story of Jesus calling disciples to himself, his first disciples, and he calls Andrew and Peter to himself. Listen to uh, how John describes this scene in John chapter 1, verse 40. He says, one of the two who heard John speak, who heard John the Baptist speak, and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon, and he said to him, hey, we have found the Messiah. And then John tells us that that means Christ. And then John tells us in verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. You see, right here, we have a wonderful example of a man named Andrew. He comes in contact with Jesus Christ, and the very first thing he does, once he realizes that Jesus is God the Son, Jesus is the Messiah they've been waiting for, the very first thing he wants to do is to go and get his brother Andrew, or go and get his brother Simon, and he brings him to Jesus. Man, that's what we ought to be doing. Leveraging the opportunity that God has given us in our family, in our home, where we live, to bring people to Jesus. You see, as a follower of Christ, I want to encourage you this morning to follow this example of Andrew and leverage those opportunities by intentionally, strategically, creatively, and urgently taking the gospel right there to those opportunities. Leveraging your home for Christ. Why? God has sovereignly placed you right there for those gospel purposes.
is. You know what it looks like. We talk about coming, and we talk about growing, and we talk about going. You see, we want people to come to Christ and his church. How do we do that unless we invite them? How do we do that unless we're investing them? How do we do that unless we make space for them? So this room's pretty limited. I don't know if you realize it yet, but Powhatan's still growing. We're 31,000 and some change. I don't think we can get 31,000 people in here. Maybe if we did 300 services in a week. But you're going to need another senior pastor because I'm, I'm going to be dead after about four of those services, right? We'll never more likely reach 31,000. That's not our goal. A number's not our goal at all. But we've been talking for several months about the need for us to move to two worship services. And some of you this morning, you might recognize that need and you might be cheering that opportunity on and that decision on. You're saying, Pastor and elders, we agree with this. We believe in this. We're behind this. Some of you are not behind it. You say, how do you know that? I hear your conversations. You see, a senior pastor is, at least in some, along with some things that people talk about, we're kind of like your mama. We hear everything. Right? Your mama's got eyes in the back of her head. She, she always saw you doing something that you weren't supposed to be doing. She could always hear what you were saying. You thought you were actually thinking it, but you were, you know, she could hear your thoughts. We're kind of like that as well. And so I hear what you say, and sometimes I'm in the conversation as well with you when you're talking about these things. And so you like the size of our church. You this morning like the feel of our church, right? You, you come in on Sunday morning and, and you recognize most faces. You, you recognize, you might know a, a good number of people. And so you like the size, you like the feel, you, you like all of the things that's happening right now. And none of us like for things to change. Right? I look in the mirror every single day. And I long for that long, thick, curly, coarse hair that when I was a teenager and a young adult in my 20s, hated because I couldn't have any other hairstyle than what it was. Right? Today, I look at it. I'm 45 years old. It's gray. It's not really there. And I think, man, I hate change. Change is good in a lot of ways. This may not be good. But there's other things about being 45 I wouldn't change at all. Change is good. And so when we think about where we're at as a church, we think about what God wants us to do and be and how he wants us to be an influence. We need to be open to what he would have us to do. So we might like the size. We might like the feel. You might, even this morning, look around this room. You say, well, we got enough empty seats. There's no need for that. We're a little down this morning. I don't know what happened I mean, my team laid an egg in football, but I'm still here. I don't know what the reason they're not here. But if you were here last Sunday, this place was full. We had 237 last Sunday. We're probably, I would guess, 212 this morning. We count kids in that number. You, you do this long enough, you begin to be able to gauge the room and, and guess. And, and you can guess pretty close many times. So I'm thinking that's where we're down about 30 people or so, I would think, this morning. And so you look around, and you say, we got enough empty seats. And so, so I hear these things that you say, and I just want to tell you this morning, as your pastor, many times it breaks my heart. You say, why does it break your heart? What's the big deal there? It's because I don't believe we as a church are fully grasping the Great Commission 
repercussions of this, the great commission um, components of this this morning. Because when we think about moving to two services, let me tell you this morning, though it's not that much big of a deal for me to preach two services, it is a big deal when we talk about volunteers and all of that. So we're not jumping in this because it's easy and fun and it's no big deal. We're jumping into this because we see the need when it comes to the gospel. How can we make disciples through our church in a greater capacity? Making space. Making space. Let me give you a few things that you might not understand uh, in this realm. First of all, you'll never know everyone in the church, and this should never be the goal. So this morning you say, I like the size, I like knowing people, yada, yada, yada. Here, here's the truth about that. You will only know about 60 people in whatever circle you're in. And so this morning, guess what? There's more than 60 people in here. You won't know everybody. Right now you don't know everybody, Right? And so unless our church is going to consist of 60 or fewer people, then, then you're never going to know everyone. This is why small groups are a vital aspect to our discipleship process. We talk about we want people to come to Christ and his church. What's the next step in that circle? Grow in God. How do you grow in God? It's not just this right here. This is part of it, right? You need to sit under the teaching of the elders of the church. You need to sit under that doctrinal uh, tutelage there. But we also need relationships, and you can't have relationships in a movie theater. And one of the things I try to express as we go through the connection class when we get to this part is if, if this is the way we do, do discipleship in a church, this looks like a movie theater. What happens in a movie theater? You walk in, and you're sitting there with 250, 300 other people. You're having a great time. You're expressing emotions. You might talk to some people. You might recognize someone you know, but you have no depth in your relationship. And once the show is over, you get up and leave. But if you want to change that, you got to go smaller. And so our small group ministry of our church is to take the crowd and take it down to cores. And so the small groups become many congregations within the greater congregation. It's the way we know and are, be, are, and are being known by others. You might know people's names in here, but you probably don't know them. Because you only know them when you're walking through life together. That happens in a small group. So one of the things we need to understand is you're never going to know everyone in the church, and that should not be the goal. Your goal is far greater than that. Secondly, you've already, or we've already surpassed excuse me, the small church field. So you say, I like the field of our church. Well, we're way past, statistically, the small church size and the small church field. You see, I'm probably the only person who knows the vast majority of the people who come through the doors of this church. Now, Trevor's catching up with me. He's been here about a year now. And just the nature of our two roles in this church, we work with the breadth of our church, right? I'm the senior pastor. He's the worship pastor. We're the guys on the stage for the most part. We're the guys. He is administrator as well. We're the guys that deal with committee members and ministry team leaders and ministry team members. So we have this breath, which is different in a, in a nuanced way from Nate or Jennifer or our other elders. There's a difference there. But here's what I want to tell you this morning. As I look over our congregation, there's many Sundays I have to go to someone and say, who's that again? I, I know they've been coming for a couple months. I just don't know who they are because we haven't had opportunities to really get to know one another. We've not 
done anything more than maybe passing the hall, a few simple words, a conversation on the phone, something like that. So we're well past that small church feel. Here's what I want you to know this morning. My goal as the senior pastor of this church is not to know every single person. Here's what my goal is. Every single person of this church knows Jesus Christ and is known by someone. There's a difference there. If this church's future rests on me being the go-to guy for everybody, it's going to be a small church. Why? I can only really know 60 people. I really can only know 60 people. But if I'll do my job, and our elders will do their job, and our staff will do their job, and our small group leaders will do their job, and all of our other ministry areas will do their job, then what happens is you've got a growing church that continues to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And what happens is you've got a gospel-saturated people that are known by each other. And I don't have to know everybody because I shouldn't have to know everybody. You think Peter and James, the half-brother of Jesus, who are leading the church in Jerusalem, knew all of those thousands of people? No. There's no possible way. But they were known by Jesus, and they were known by someone. Third thing I want you to understand. People will not attend for long if finding space is a struggle. You see, finding enough parking and seating, is, seating space is crucial for guests and regular attenders. Therefore, it's important that we take measures to ensure plenty of both. So we've been asking you to sit close together, right? We've been asking you to not act like Americans, and you haven't really responded that great to it, but I understand you're Americans. Now, if we were in Africa or some other places I've been around the world, you'd be sitting on, on top of each other, and you'd think that's great. But we like our space, right? We're Powhatan people also. We want big tracts of land and no one living next to us. We bring that mentality into the church. We, we want three or four spaces between, but we also love one another, right? So we've been asking you, move in. Move to the middle of the section, right? Why? Because someone who's a guest is probably going to show up a little bit later than you, and they need to find a place to sit. We've also said, move to the front. And I've jokingly said, I won't look at you, because right, the three or four rows here in the front, haven't looked at them one time this morning except for Melissa. <laughs> so if you want anonymity, sit up front, baby. Space is going to be a struggle. We've been talking about the need for two services, an 8 a.m., an 11 a.m., with small groups in between at 9.30. These are opportunities we can leverage for the gospel. The fourth thing you may not understand. People will not attend long if their children are not served well. When you have a church that is growing, meaning through the gospel and, and, and reaching and discipling people, that church typically is going to grow with younger families. Unless we're in Florida in a retirement community, you will not grow a church with senior adults. No knock against senior adults. It's just that senior adults usually only already have a church. Or also, they have passed that point in life when they're more open to the gospel. Let's be honest, most people come to know Christ before they're 18 years old. Statistics will tell us that, right? And this is also what happens. If, and we're kind of getting past this a little bit because we are much, very much a de-church, post-Christian culture, though. There's still remnants of us in the South. So what happens here in the South is those who grow up in church many times will leave the church, but a few of them, once they begin to settle down, get married, have families, come back into the church where do you think that growth comes, growth comes from for the church? Young families, right? 
So when a young family comes into this church and for the very first time and, and, and they come to a, a children's area to drop their child off at the nursery, the preschool, or a small group room or whatever, if that experience is not good, you think they're coming back? No. Now, I, I'll tell you this morning, that's not our problem right now. In fact, we, we, have, we hear the very opposite. What we hear from people all the time is, man, my kids loved it. My kids had an awesome time. In fact, we were a little hesitant about really jumping back into church, but we couldn't help but follow the lead of our kids. Now, I would say, I would never tell them right then because I want to offend them right off the bat, but if I had a little bit more um, rapport with them, I'd say, that's not the best parenting. You probably should be leading that, but I'm all for kids loving our children's ministry. So we have something really good going on. And I'm grateful for Jennifer and all of our volunteer base who lead in that area. Yet, as we make plans to move to multiple services, here's what we need more of. More volunteers in kids' ministry. We were supposed to move to two services in September. We pulled it back because we don't want to step into that arena if we're not fully staffed in our children's ministry area. So this is what we've asked you to do as a church. And I'll just be honest this morning. You have not responded to it which is disappointing. I say that in love, I say that in kindness, but it's been disappointing. We've asked you as a church to seriously consider worshiping at one service, serving in the kids' ministry, nursery, kids' church or nursery in the other service. You say, Pastor, you would ask us to come to church from 7.45 till 12? Yeah. What else are you going to do? Sleep? <laughs> oh, oh, what do we... I, I'm preaching this morning, not teaching. Where's the priority in your life? Where's the priority? You see, I was talking about secularism with Judaism earlier, and I said that this is what's happening in the church. That's, secularism was when self steps in. And when we, when we look at our church experience and when we look at our allegiance to Jesus and when we look at our commitment to the Great Commission and we say, I don't want to do that, I don't want to give time to that, or I've done that in my past, I've put my time in, who's on the throne of your life? Self. And so church, I'm calling you to step up. I'm calling you to step into this space and say, Jennifer, I don't know how I can help, but I, I will help, right? I'll help. Or hey, Marilyn and, and, and our hospitality people and security people, I'm available, right? Because we need people still in those areas as well. But I, I'm asking you as a church, when we move to two services, don't think about it from the standpoint of I can come to 8 o'clock church, which has surprised me that the vast majority of you seem to want to come to 8 o'clock church. Now, I love morning people. I is one. But I think you're coming at this from the wrong perspective. I think what you're thinking is, man, I can go to church at 8, small group at 9.30. I'm done at 10.45. I can get lunch and still get home to watch the football game, the start of the game, right? I think we're coming at it from a perspective of what can I get out of this deal. It's not good. It's not good. Lastly, our church's bad experience one church is not our church. One church's bad experience does not, it, does not mean it will be our experience. You see, all of us bring past experiences with us as we come into this church, right? We all bring in past experiences, baggage even. And so I would ask that we agree to not project those bad experiences upon our church. You see, if your fear is that we're going to move into two services, which is going to morph into two churches... 
That doesn't mean that's going to happen. There's going to be an element that's different. The feel's going to be different, but it's not about feelings. If we lean in and continue to commit to small groups, that's the unity there. You you only know a certain amount of people anyway. So it's not about us just being in one room at the same time, though I'm all for that, right? There will be a day in the future at some point that I pray that we can build a large enough worship building where we can all be back in one service. But until that day, how do we make space for more people to be under the gospel and become disciples of Jesus Christ? And so let's not think about the previous bad experience in a different church that had multiple services that, that was a bad thing because it was just two churches and there was no unity there or whatever. Most of the time, those churches don't have the small group philosophy that we do. And that's the difference. We don't believe this is the best thing for you. We believe it's part of it. But if you're not in small groups, you're missing the greatest thing that we do as a church. The last way we can leverage this opportunity of the church, this is number three, is by going out. See, we're going to invite others. We're going to make space. But... We also need to go out. See, while we want to make space for those you've yet to come to Christ in his church, if we understand the Great Commission correctly, the way for them to come in is for us to go out. So we have to leverage opportunities that we see within our community for gospel purposes. And here's one new way we've been doing this, or we're kicking it off, firewood ministry. I don't know if you've paid attention. Surely you don't live under a rock that we think some of you live under at times because, you know, you're like, Late to the game, signing up. Hey, is that still open for signups? That closed five days ago, but sure, we'll put your name down. Uh, That happens sometimes. I am just on a roll this morning. I feel so free today, (laughs) so good. I'm already over time. Firewood ministry, if you haven't realized, is a big chunk of wood out here. And for the last, I don't know, five or six weeks, we've been collecting wood, splitting it, stacking it. Some has already been delivered. Next Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, is our gathering day. People will be coming to our campus from across the community, people who need wood for the wintertime. And so hopefully you'll be here to help us stack wood and, and, and split more wood and, and, and serve people while they're here to have conversations with them and interact with their children. We're going to make deliveries to some people who can't come and get wood for themselves. What is this all about? This is about us seeing a tangible need in our community because we're going into winter time and it's going to be cold. And people don't have the resources to buy enough firewood at times because I don't know if you've realized that things are expensive these days. One thing we got enough of in Palatine is wood, right? We got enough wood to, to, to fire the fireplaces throughout this county for years to come. And so we're leveraging this opportunity for the sake of the gospel. And so we want you here Saturday morning to invest in people because that's what it's about. It's about people. How can we build a relationship? How can we build a relational bridge with another person in our county through this tangible need for the sake of the gospel to travel over? You see, the greatest need that we see here is not physical warmth through the cold days of winter. The greatest need in the lives of the people that we're going to be interacting with is spiritual warmth through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're leveraging this opportunity for the gospel. Will you join us in this endeavor? We need to leverage that and so many more. So church, let's be on mission right here in our community. Let's be on mission in our state, throughout our nation. Let's be on mission around the world. 
We have a team in South Asia serving right now. Let's pray for them. Let's join them on the next opportunity to go overseas on a short-term trip. Let's join the teams that will be going to Puerto Rico. Trevor and I will be flying the first week of December to go to Puerto Rico. We're going to meet with two church church planters and finalize which church plant we're going to partner with. What are we doing this for? It's because we want to reach that island with the gospel. That island is largely, vastly largely lost. But it also serves another purpose for us. This is a baby step for you to do greater international missions. Because we can get your feet wet going to an American territory, a short flight, a relatively cheap trip. You can go there, experience this. Because some of you have never done that and you're hesitant because you don't like to try things that are new. But if you'll go to Puerto Rico, it's a one step closer and much easier for you to say, I'll go to South Asia. I'll go to East Central Africa. I'll go to Europe. I'll go to... Russia or wherever else we may go in the future. Will you be open to that? Will you be open to making disciples here and there? So this morning, I wonder what ways you're looking for opportunities to help people and to ferry them across the great divide that separates them from God. How are you leveraging these opportunities right there in your home, at work, right here in the church? Lord Jesus is searching for far from God people. Are we on that same search? What does that look like in your life? What does it look like in your family? What does it mean for your schedule? What does it mean for your budget? How does your attitude need to change concerning the transition and and the things that we're doing as a church? Are, Are we on board together, moving together in this great commission that God's put us on? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're here this morning because someone leveraged the gospel opportunity that they had to invest in us. We all have different stories of how that played itself out, but Lord, we're here today in relationship with Jesus, those of us who are in relationship with Jesus, because someone leveraged the gospel, built a bridge, and reached us. This morning, across the county of Powhatan, the greater metro area, the state of Virginia, the nation that we live in, and the nations of this world, people are dying and going to hell. And if we and the rest of your church don't reach them, that's their destiny. And so, Father, I pray that we would have a deep heart and a deep affection for the Lord Jesus Christ and the people that he's created. Lord, may we be open to the things that we've talked about this morning. May they weigh heavy on us until we say yes. God, this morning we have been preaching to the church. We've been talking about the need to go and to share. Perhaps there's some in this room this morning who need to respond to the gospel we've been talking about. We talked about discipling, making disciples in the church. Lord, one of the ways we do that is just making sure the gospel is clear and offered every single Sunday, every single Wednesday. So, Father, if that's a a man in this room, a woman, a child, teenager, that, Lord, they know they're far from God. They know they're, they're dead in trespasses and sin. They know they need to repent and believe on Jesus through faith. God, I pray this morning that they would be able and be bold enough They'll come and say, Pastor, I need to make that decision in my life. Can someone help me?
Lord, give them the boldness to do that. This time's yours as we respond in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.